Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. This is CMO Moves, the podcast that showcases the human side of game-changing leaders. Here are their incredible journeys, the moves that they've made, and most importantly, their personal stories of how they got to be the leaders of some of the world's most exciting brands. We hope you'll enjoy their stories and take away a few tips and inspiration for your day. Enjoy the show. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hello and welcome to CMO Moves. It's me, Heidi Palermo, Head of Community here at Adweek. And I have here with me, Mr. Stephen Tristan Young, the Chief Marketing Officer of Poshmark. Hey, Stephen. Good morning, Heidi. How's it going? Good morning. This is a episode in the making for a very long time. So I'm super, super excited. And for those of you who don't know what Poshmark is, it's a resale marketplace for fashion. And there are so many gems you can find. I've been shopping um, Poshmark probably since you guys started. How old is the company now? It's about 10 years. It's been a, it's an amazing journey. And like the way we describe ourselves just, you know, to add on that, which is a great description. It's a social marketplace where you're able to resale fashion goods, beauty, home goods, as well as sneakers and hopefully futurely other categories. It's not like a a Craigslist or marketplace where it's like a kind of free-for-all. We do try to choose items that people can sell that represent a little bit about who you are as a person, your style, 
things that are also like lightly worn, we always call it like also gently pre-loved because the idea is that when you're passing something on to someone else, you want them to enjoy it um, because it's something that you've worn, you've loved, but you want someone else to love it, but you've also taken care of it. So oftentimes handbags, sneakers, jackets. I know a lot of, I parted with a lot of nicer shoes that I used to wear to the office. You know what? It's time for you to go, Mr. Ferragamo. I'd like something more comfortable. Oh, that's so funny you mentioned that. Yeah, because I started to see a lot of business clothes on there. (laughs) I'm like, yep, no wonder. It makes sense. You know what's great? I saw a lot of people buying in like Midwest because I remember I saw one of my shoes. I was like thinking someone from New York would buy and it was like someone from Montana. I was like, that's great. I love someone. (laughs) someone That's awesome. And so three years at Poshmark. Prior to that, you were at um, Grubhub for seven years. Your last role there, VP of marketing, correct? Yep. I was the VP of growth. And yes, I was there for seven years. I was originally part actually of the Seamless team. So I started in 2010 as part of Seamless in New York, where if I explained food delivery to people, they thought, wait, so do you make the food? Do you deliver it? I was like, no, no, we're like the Netflix for food, right? You can blame the restaurant, but we just get you the food that you want and we're the marketplace. And I went through the whole transition of being acquired by Grubhub and then going through the pre and post IPO. And then even after the IPO, there's a lot more change because we acquired so many companies. So sometimes the seven years honestly felt like 14 because the company changed so much every other six months. It was like every 18 months it changed. That is such a foreign concept that you act to think that you had to explain what food delivery was. How funny. (laughs) Well, you know what? It's at the time, most people don't even think about it. And as a marketer, I said, oh, this is great. So it's, here's a category. Most people don't know about it. I want marketing to do the job of getting people to adopt it and getting to know more about it. It's the same logic as to why I joined Poshmark. I even said, most people don't think about reselling their clothes or kind of circularity as a thought like in 2018. And now sustainability, circularity, like resale has just blown up in this last year. So I feel like I'm kind of on a similar journey where I I sort of discovered this thing that most people don't know, because I mean, at the time in 2018, I looked at other companies that were very well known. And ultimately, when I chose this one, I said, I want something that's not known. I want something where I, as a marketer, can make a mark and my ability to help shape the company's journey, help explain to people. And and that comes through, you know, in the the creative, it comes through in the channels that we do, it comes through in the employees that I hire. So I feel like it's been a very parallel journey. And in some sense, I'm using a lot of the same skills, but in very different businesses. And just thinking about that move from Grubhub to Poshmark, especially because both digitally native brands, you have, like you said, the concepts of them not being widely adopted yet. And you had hopes for that. Also their first ever CMO and your first CMO role. Did you know that that CMO would be your next move? So that's a great question. In my fifth year tenure at Grubhub, I started to look for CMO jobs. And there were so many great companies out there, but I found it a struggle to look for a job when you're in a job that you love, especially because I was like, okay, it was almost like I'm com- I'm looking at the top of the mountain. Every opportunity didn't look like, oh, it's too small. Oh, it's too unknown. And I remember like a new CMO came into, Gre- into Grubhub like in 2015, and she and I had a great conversation. She's now the chief digital officer of Ikea. And I really realized that I could learn from her for another two years and really what it means to be a really great CMO. And I felt, okay, I could wait another two years, but at that time, still look, still have conversations. But ultimately the decision I made was that I wasn't going to leave Grubhub immediately into a job. I felt like seven years in any kind of company is a long time, especially in a high growth, high intense company that I felt like I needed to get off the train and just to give myself some room to breathe. And so I actually took eight months off to travel. The strangest time because people were like, wait, you're at the peak of your career. Like, why are you doing this? I'm like, this is the time actually to do it. 
to take a little bit of breathing room and to give myself the, the chance of what is it that I want to do? Because mm-hmm. I couldn't figure it out when I was at Grubhub. So maybe if I'm not working, I might have a better chance of figuring it out. And interestingly, it actually did give me more of the time and space to think, what kind of company do I want to be a part of? Um, what opportunity was not about fulfilling my ego, but actually helping to build a business? And also, could I be more, I called it location agnostic. Because at the time in 2015 saying I'm going to leave New York was like, that's blasphemy. You're like, you never leave New York. But I found when I was on my travels, since I was changing cities every other week, that when I got back to New York, I was actually bored. It was almost like sensory overload. That at that point I was talking to my partners like, you know what? I think we should be open to moving cities. Um, and then that turned out that I interviewed actually in London and Seattle and San Francisco and Dallas. I was like, let's just open up the spigot. And when you actually do that, more opportunities open up. And so that's how the Poshmark opportunity came through is I hadn't even thought about going to the West Coast. And then it just so happened that someone said, hey, there's an opening. I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go chat. And I, I followed my energy and the instinct that I had when I met with the CEO, Manish. I literally almost said, I'm not taking this call. I'm not taking this call. I was like, you know what? Let's open the door. Let's have the call. And ended up really enjoying hearing about his vision about the business and what he was presenting to me as an opportunity. And by the way, there was also a lot of unknowns. He goes, we've never had a CML, but I really like you. Let me create a team for you. Would you be open to that? And I was like, sure. And it was weird because I said, I think that Steven in 2018 was not the Steven in 2016, where I needed the job to have like X title, Y number of teams, Z budget. Here it was more like more nebulous. But I think because I was in that mindset of being more open to things, and, and not having the ego of here's the job I'm coming from versus actually was like, I have no job. So at this point, anything <laughs> is an opportunity, right? Wow, that is such a good point, especially right now with we, a lot of the um, folks in our mentee group I've been talking to have mentioned like, when they, you know, when COVID first hit and a lot of folks either lost their job or they decided to leave on their own, they feel like they're being treated differently going into roles or applying for roles. So what advice could you offer for somebody who does take that time off to like how to position yourself or get back into where that's not so much a barrier? So great question. I encountered this at every single interview where you either had the person that was like, so you haven't worked for eight months, like, almost like a level of judgment. Right. And instead of coming into it with a negative, like defensive, I actually said, let me take you through my career journey and why I made the decision to take eight months off and, and really actually managing the narrative and controlling it. And you know, saying, I, I had intended to do this and here's why I was doing it. And here's what I learned during that time. And now what I'm trying to do is figure out which company I want to work for, commit myself for the next three to five to seven years and help them solve a problem and build a business. And literally by turning it that way, you could literally see the person going, oh, hmm, yeah, I wanted to do that too a long time ago, but I never got <laughs> like, it was amazing to see some, a moment where it could have been such a point of, of um, weakness. Just if you narrative, you create your narrative and say why you did it, what you felt like you learned and why you use that time wisely, whether you took a class, you took some travel, you just took some time off and also say, here's what I needed for myself. And I actually say that the people who really responded the best on that, interesting story, for all the CEOs I met who also had taken time off. Mm-hmm. And every time I said something like that, there was a, whether it was a CEO or a SVP, it was like, oh yeah, I've taken time off too. It's great that you did that. <laughs> and actually by owning that narrative, it didn't feel like it was a weakness. And a lot of yeah. it is just how you show up in that interview and either reframing the decisions you made or reframing the actions you took um, during your time off so that people feel like, hey, I want you to be on my team because you're clearly confident, you clearly have intention in your actions, and you have a great track record. Because I think at the end, that's what we all want. And I think oftentimes if you're interviewing and that's not coming through, 
it's usually because interviews can smell weakness, right? They're like, you're not confident in yourself, so you're hiding something. And if you're coming and feeling like you're hiding something instead of like, let's open it up, let's have a discussion. Right. I feel like that always changes the tone immediately. That's such good advice. And I, um, I had to write down a lot of my thoughts on this. And actually, I have it as a PDF because whenever I, I meet with someone, I'm like, these jobs, especially I think the senior executive jobs, they're not about your perfection. They're about how did you solve problems? They're about how did you tackle things? They want to know also the times that you made a mistake. They also want to know the times that you didn't do well because they can't, no CEO expects any executive to be perfect. If you come in, here's my scroll of success and accomplishments. What they want to know is like, what are you hiding? Because that's their mindset usually. And I do feel like even coming into those, time off is always a benefit, especially if you're using it wisely, whether for yourself, for your education, for your family, even the travel. I said the number of people that end up saying, I'm jealous. I've always wanted to do that. Right. It was staggering. And like I said, it was not what I thought was going to happen when I started the interview. I actually thought I was going to be like, okay, I'm in an uphill battle. You're still basically presenting a story to them about why they should hire you. And I think it's about being as authentic, but also not coming from a place of fear. And I think just taking that stance alone already changes the entire conversation. That is such good advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. And when you think about being a CMO in tech, yeah. What kind of skills do you think are different in that or what makes that role different than non-tech brands? Let me answer this a couple of ways. I think whenever you're a successful marketer in any big brand, right, you have a lot of people around you who echo the same thoughts about how to manage projects, how to think about hiring agencies, how to think about creative. I think when you, you become a tech CMO, <clears throat> a couple things have to happen. You have to become a conduit to explain to people what all those things mean, right? Because to a lot of tech companies, they don't know honestly what to do with marketers. They especially don't know how to do it, what to do if they haven't given you the right teams, the right structures. So you almost need to narrate for them, what do I need to be successful in the role? And how does my experience, whether it's helping hire agencies, helping refine the creative story, helping hire people, helping manage like your PR and your comms, how is all that helpful for a tech company? So I think being that conduit to explain all that and almost having a not here's what I know. Like, let me take you to the journey of understanding what marketing truly is at the most, not basic, at the most like mature level, right? Mm -hmm. Because for a lot of them, they want to get to that mature level of marketing, but they don't know what it means. Even when I came in, like one great example I had, it, my team wasn't doing a bad thing, but they hired an agency, but the agency they hired wasn't very good. It wasn't very run well. And I had to come through and not say, here's everything you're doing wrong. It's like, hey, let's go through the six, eight month process of let me show you what it means to manage them to hire them, to work with them. And that actually allowed them to be better employees because they're like, oh, I didn't know that. Because like I said, most tech companies don't come in with hiring multi-million dollar agencies, which all of us who are marketers that work for big brands know have your job is managing agencies, managing mm -hmm. external talent, getting the most out of them, managing your rate cards, getting breakthrough creative. And how do you get the agency to do that? So I think that's step one. I think two is also a very different sort of mentality, which is coming from a place of humility and knowing that there's an entire ecosystem of engineers, product people, data people that don't know anything else but tech. And instead of coming in saying, I know it all, actually stepping in with them is like, explain to me how that works. I'd be surprised how many people feel that fear of not knowing instead of saying, let me just dig in and understand how this is all built. And I, and I can say for me as a marketer, it's amazing when you can open your mind to how things are done at a tech company because where things move fast. When I worked at Grubhub and I loved it, that she came from Amex, she'd been it for 14 years, amazing marketer. And I remember her first two weeks, I, I sat her down and was like, okay, listen, it's like, you got to move fast. 
Things have to be very brief. Things are usually digital. We're not perfecting slides and slides on end unless it's a board meeting. But it's just, what is a 50-page deck from Amex? Not going to work here. Like, <laughs> slide, really on the screen. You just got to edit as we go along. What problem are you trying to solve? How can you solve as fast as possible? And how can you communicate as fast as possible? So I think even that stylistic change is something that I often tell people, you want to bring in all your best parts, but also recognize that some of your best parts in the, in the orgs you've worked at don't really work in a tech company where they want to move fast. Right. They want to do things quickly and not spend hours on end. They like to focus on minimum viable product instead of perfection. Right. I described to some people that in big orgs, like we often will do a lot of research on a product before we then scope out the product and the requirements and then launch it. Here it's like, I have an idea what I want. I think I can get it built within three weeks. Okay, let's see what happens if we launch it. And that's scary to a lot of marketers. They're like, what do you mean? It's like, no, no, you can always pull it back. So I think, and that's the third part is that nothing is forever in tech. You can change pages. You can pull things out. Maybe not as fast as you'd like, but unlike in Typical marketing words where once you launch a product, it's out there in the ether, it's hard to pull back things. Right. Um, you understand that things aren't forever, but you're also just like trying to like communicate to people are like the best ways I think that any marketer can succeed in tech. Totally agree. Now tell me about, so you also, you were in a unique position, Stephen, at both companies to be able to be there pre and post IPO. I'm curious what was like the biggest change you could say from when you take a brand public or the biggest challenge, maybe you could say? That's a good question. I think there's twofold on that. One of which is how, how do you navigate the emotional journey that is an IPO for your teams, where you go from being a private company, doing things your own way, to then being a public company where you have a lot more exposure, you have a lot more scrutiny, and everything has to be on a quarterly level. I think taking people through that discipline is incredibly important. And it's not something I would say a lot of teams have. And I, I know I saw it on both sides where it's, oh, hmm, we used to do it this way. Okay, we're gonna have to like do this slightly differently. Because once we become a public company, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> we can't just be willy-nilly about our planning. I think the second part from a company standpoint is really showing them also that the street wants a lot. You can't just have one story a year. You're gonna have to have multiple stories a year. You're gonna have to have multiple narratives that you come out there too, as far as what is your brand? How do you, what is your product line? How do you think about your customers? I think that's another challenge is that you now have multiple stakeholders. Everyone now knows who you are and the story that you've had, which is great whenever you're a private company, TechCrunch loves it, Recodes loves it. It's very different once the Wall Street Journal is covering it, New York Times is covering it. So I think those are all things that as a marketer, you've got to really navigate through like the team journey, but you've also got to navigate through you as the leader about like how to describe that narrative. I'll say even in this last round when I was working on the Poshmark IPO, when we were going through building the roadshow video, everyone had an opinion about what, what should happen. And I had to tell my CEO, I was like, listen, I'm going to have to be the director. You have to trust me on this. This is my job now to step in. It's like, what is our company narrative? What throughput do I want in that 25 minute video to come through as the cleanest story about our business? And it, it, it's not everything. I have to choose one thing and I'm going to anchor all the point, the messaging pillars to it. And then I trust me that the output's going to be what we want. And I think that also required a lot of faith. And at that point, my CEO and I had worked together for about at least two years already. So he understood, look, I have a vision. We're going to make it come through, but you have to trust me. And even at, there was, I remember there was one point where I had to describe to the creative team how to think about social commerce, like the social element of Poshmark, the sharing, the comments and the likes. And the story was, and this, like I said, right, I felt like I was a CMO. I came and was like, wait, hold on, hold on. Do you remember that movie, Crazy Rich Asians? Do you remember that one scene in the beginning where like Radio One Asia communicated this thing? I was like, I want that. And then literally the creative team was like, what do you mean? They saw, I was like, 
oh, now I get it. I'm like, yeah, pattern recognition coming in. If we could replicate that to describe what it's like to sell a dress on Poshmark so that the social network actually then activates. Right. It's like maybe one talking story about that. It's like, and how they did visually. And I think it helped uh, to communicate to the creative team what I wanted, but that's that's a lot of what we do in big brands. But to do it in a smaller organ, to they'd be able to have the, the, room, the room to do that in the leeway was really amazing. And I felt like that's that to me was a moment I was being truly a CMO when I was communicating a vision and then trying to think through the examples to help the creative team get there so that ultimately the product was the best product for the business. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great example. I wonder if there's anything that you would say, what if somebody going through that as a leader right now in a brand that's maybe recently IPO'd, about to be like any, what, what's one piece of advice you would offer? Ask for a lot of help externally, get a lot of advice because that whole process moves so fast Mm -hmm. that you don't even have time to real, like by the time you get to one point, you're like already behind. And so actually, if you have the, if you have the luxury of knowing that it's about to come like eight, nine months, do all your research now, talk to as many people as possible who've gone through it, get all the best practice. So when you're coming in, you already know what other resources do I need? What are the things I need to spend my time on that require my most attention? Because you're not able to do all of it. Things are just going to have to be on hold or maybe not. Like having your team also be able to run the team while you're doing it. I think those are all things that doing that whole eight, nine month process can be incredibly taxing. And I, I often ask people, make sure to ask for help. You can't do it all. Even when it comes to all the creative asset development, because there's a lot. Yeah. It really needs a lot of forethought and planning. But if you only have six months, you can still do it. But just figure out like where you're going to spend your time because you not everything's going to be perfect. Let's dive into kind of, I, I want to talk about community. I know that is there's so much to talk about when it comes to community and the role it plays for brands today. Some doing it well, some not so much. But for Poshmark, it's really core to the business, just the way that your company is set up. Tell me a little bit about how you guys view the role of community within marketing. Sure. So it's so funny you talk about this because I recently was on a discussion panel where we talked about community as a new loyalty. And the idea is that- That is truth right there. It's very truth. And like I said, I reference American Express, the way we drove loyalty was through point, right? But if you think about the fact that every company now has points, points have become incredibly commoditized. The new question is like, how do you drive that affinity for your brand when- people change their minds every other like hour, right? And a lot of is the, the community development. And I'll say that when we first started as a business and I wasn't there 10 years ago, my CEO and the team really focused on the community as an element of what they wanted to, what they wanted Poshmark to be different from every other e-commerce platform. And that it wasn't just going to be this place where you could just sell everything, but it was a place where you can also interact, mm-hmm. a place where you can also share best practices. And then the best part is then taking it offline. And when I came in, I remember my CEO said, oh my gosh, there's like, our community is super strong. There's, we have events, you know, all around the country every week. We have, they're hosted by our community. Then we have events that we throw. Then we have our annual posh fest. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is fantastic. This is the best kind of organic word of mouth. And the question now is like, how do we continue to scale that? And I think what I've seen is that a lot of tech brands that are coming out now are really community-based tech brands. If I think about Peloton, I think about Glossier, Poshmark, Topgolf, Fiverr, all of these, basically the tech is the means to the end. But the people at the end of the day are the ones that are connecting to each other. Right. Um, and I think that's ultimately, like I said, my, just my own personal party of one is that we all love Twitter. We all love Facebook. We all love Snapchat. But at the end, we're human beings. We want to connect with each other. And being in person, live events um, are a big part of what makes us successful. I even think about Airbnb as a perfect example of their travel community like share best practice with each other. They have events. They have their own version of Salesforce, uh, Dreamforce. 
And I think that's the new wave that a lot of people are going to because mm -hmm. you can't just be giving away more points because points are highly commoditized. Right. So how do you make your technology platform, which is all about the people, and also your decisions be about the people, I think is how you build a really strong community. And I think the hard part though is, I've always been said, we have so many other sub-communities too. And I think my vision has always been like the Poshmark is a community of communities, that everyone is welcome here, whether you're a mother who's selling, you're a Gen Z who's selling, um, you're a male who's selling, you're also yep. someone who's a casual seller. I think that's what the company's done a really good job on. But I do think that this is the next wave where a lot of people are realizing, how do we create a community first orientation to marketing? Mm -hmm. And what that means, though, is you have to dedicate resources. Yep. There has to be someone that you hire who's a community developer from the very beginning, right. whose job is to cultivate. And funnily, it's just, this is like the original loyalty, right? Loyalty is about how do you talk to your best customers, your next best customers, your third best customers, and move them up the pyramid. And I think this is just the next manifestation of it that doesn't involve points. That actually involves like real outreach and more communication and using all of the tools you have, whether it's email, events, social, to really communicate with your customers so that they're feeling, they're feeling heard. Right. Um, they're feeling recognized. And most importantly, they feel like they're part of, you know, a membership community that isn't just about the brand, but it's about them. Uh, I'm actually working closer with the team to help them come up with some new thoughts and new ideas of how to do this. We just finished our annual Posh Fest this past week, which you know, we had 1300 plus uh, attendees. It was fully virtual. We intended it to be hybrid, but then Delta came in and some of my plans. But now I actually want to think about the next two years very differently and say, look, there's going to be another Delta. This thing might still be around. Right. We want people to feel comfortable connecting with each other. How do we create a framework and structure so that we can have events that are still run by our community, but there's a safety involved, that there's also us creating these opportunities for people. And that three, we're also creating optionality in our decisions so that maybe instead of having one big event a year, maybe we have several big events a year. Um, so I think we're like noodling through that. But for us, this is so core to our brand. Yeah, absolutely. Rethinking this approach, given everything that's happened, has to be the mandate. I know you've joined several of our CMO symposiums in the past. We probably could have one just on events and back to live hybrid. Like what are people thinking? What ideas are, are out there? Because you want to move in the direction of the, the sentiment and general feeling of your audience. But at the same time, you kind of want to put it out there that we're doing this. And I think that'll get people energized and back into it. Yeah. Um, quick, one more question on community. Yeah. Do you find your team having to decide how much do you own versus how much do you let foster? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. It is definitely a constant push pull. Mm -hmm. uh, one is like, how do you respect people's time? Because especially for us, like a lot of our community members host the events on our behalf. So they're actually being advocates for us. And even in that scenario, like, do we control what they say? What I think our philosophy has been is if you're hosting something, we want to make it as easy for you as possible. So we send you the swag, we give you a stipend, but we let you have control of it so that you have the organic way. Um, now, what it means also as a brand marketer, you're like, oh my gosh, like people might take my logo and do different things with it. And I'm like, and that's okay. I think that to me has been a bit about letting go. And that, yeah, pick your battles. Does that definitely. really matter in the grand scheme of things? Any traditional marketer, it's like a freak out when you see the wrong logo someplace. And I still have those moments. I'm like, what, what happened to my logo there? But I also know that the output, the, the what really matters, you know, it's, I always say about doing things right versus doing the right things. I think when I was a big org, it was always about doing things right. Now in a fast moving company, it's about doing the right things. And I, I think love that for us, giving the tools for our community to do and work on our behalf, we want to make it easier. We want to facilitate it is doing the right thing because that forwards our brand that allows us to attract more people that allows them to also engage with others. I think that is, if, if there was something to talk about to the original question around being a CMO in tech versus being a CMO in big brand, that's another way of thinking about the framework is 
you're often with that choice, like doing the right things or doing things right. What do you want to work on? Because you won't have the time. And I think it's important to have your, to empower your team to think that way as well. And that for me, I didn't want to create a brand that was so constrictive. I said, I wanted to have it be a lot more organic and so that people can interpret it their own way, which allows us to then really create this community-based brand versus yeah. having it be a top-down, having it almost be a bottom-up, not actually not even bottom Someone's like in, working through the middle where there's a little bit of a partnership between us and them. And that they also know they respect us and that they listen to us and that we also listen to them. Yep. Totally agree. Any other predictions you have as in terms of the future of community? Where are we headed? I think there's going to be even more. It's just, and I, I think what I'm finding is that you have so many more channels to communicate to. I think you see it like Facebook groups blew up mm-hmm. in the last two years. Everyone just has all these sub communities of interest. I think it goes back to just the fact that we all have, we're, we're all human beings with different passions. Like I said, you just, you discovered baby fashion resale. Like I have a passion for squash. I have a passion for my, my partner's huge into Marvel. And like, he's found that community. Like they love talking about like the next movie. And I was joking that it's like, you do realize like, watching these YouTube videos is a little bit crazy sometimes. Like they're dissecting every part of the movie. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm guilty. I, I'm part of the Jurassic Park fan group on Facebook. Yeah. It's, it's addicting. <laughs> but it, what it's, you know what? I think it's for all of us being cooped up, being able to li- live our passions. I know like someone asked me, what was your big sort of guilty pleasure? I was like, I did a lot of K-beauty during the pandemic. I was like, I did my beauty routine. I was like, I have time. I can do 15 steps. Because before you're like, you don't have time <laughs> Like, but now you're like, I got nothing else to do. Oh, that's awesome. And one one thing I, I mentioned earlier that you are, and this is the second year, you're part of our executive mentor program. So first of all, thank you for dedicating okay. the time. What, you know, a question for you on just your experience. And maybe we, we hear a lot about uh, the importance of reverse mentoring, right? So here we have uh, top CMOs, uh, top executives of the world's top brands mentoring future CMOs, but you guys also learn a lot from your mentees throughout the process. So maybe what's one gem you can drop? So I've had two of them. And by the way, they've been fantastic. And we have very organic conversations. We touch base, like, even I think after the program, I still touch base with them. One, because I just want to learn from them, like how they're thinking about their career navigation, especially from someone who's probably much younger, like, for me, it's understanding like, hey, what are they looking for as far as their next path? Like, what are they looking for in an org that they want to join? What are they looking for in a leader? Which helps me think about then how do I design my org so that if I want to attract talent like them, I'm not thinking here's what everyone wants. I'm actually hearing what people are looking for and designing it there, especially when it comes to the interview. I think it's critical for every senior leader to know that people have choices these days. They can go anywhere they want. It's, it is literally a, a job hiring market. It's important for us to listen to what's important to them. Is it flexibility? Is it choice in jobs? Is it comp? Is it opportunity? Is it like autonomy? To me, hearing what they care about in their roles has been really fantastic because it's so hard because my team won't tell me that sometimes because obviously they they are incentivized in a very different way. But to hear that from others who are probably similar to my team in terms of age group is fantastic as another source of information because how else would I get that unless I'm, you know, actually hanging out with them, which might, and like I said, my team, sometimes they'll tell me what they want, but it's, it's better to, what is the implicit needs versus what is the explicit things that they say to me? So I think that for me has been a great, fantastic experience, but I love being a part of it because also hearing how they're going through their career navigation, like you should go in and ask to see what else you can do and what more you want. Because so many people I think are engineered not to think, to ask for more. What should I do? Versus you can craft it. You can choose what you want. You're in the pole position. How do you want to navigate through this? And just playing through those different scenarios has been the most, for me, most rewarding and gratifying. Having people hear what I say, let me help you guide so that you can learn from my mistakes. Because then maybe you might one day pass it on to others as well. 
Right. That's what I was just going to say. Even just giving a different perspective, um, whether they take the advice or not, it's just at least good to hear somebody else's story. So thank you again for being part of the program. Look forward to um, next year. We're going to do it again and uh, look forward to having you as part of that again. And, you know, I want to talk quickly about something I know is, speaking of passions, I know DEI is a huge passion point for you. And we were just talking about kind of teams and what they might look for in a company, what you might look for in them. It's a two-way street. How do you as a leader kind of craft and foster and cultivate a very diverse dynamic team? So I'll say this, that is always a work in progress. Um, I think last year, especially during the social unrest, I think there was a lot of things where I had to look at my team and say, okay, we're not where I want us to be in terms of diversity. I think we had, we were already very good. I think we could be even better. Mm -hmm. And so for me, a lot of it was like working through my teams and saying, how do we think about hiring? Like, how do we think about our implicit bias, working with our people team to help them that for me, a lot of what I have to do is make sure that I'm also out there cultivating networks to help attract more talent. And also being out there and speaking about my own experiences, both as an Asian American male, as like LGBTQIA and saying, look, here are all the ceilings I went through. If you come and let's work together, I think you're going to work for someone who's gone through your struggle, who's gone through and understand where you're coming from. Hire the people who are basically more or less like us. It's, it's hard. Like we all do it by default, but really actively saying, what does this person bring to the table? Could they be different? I'll give you an example is that there was someone on my team. We were hiring someone who came from a government experience. And I remember telling her, I was like, she's, I don't know. She has no like email marketing. I, was, I don't know. If you look at her background, she's worked really hard. She's accomplished a lot of things. I think she's going to be great. She has strong will, medium skill, medium to low, but she's got strong will. Sure enough, she came and she goes, blew it out of the water. She's fantastic. She just had that drive. And that's why I think sometimes you have to think about will and skill mm-hmm. and then think less about almost where they're coming from and their background, et cetera. Because I think those by default help create a lot of the systemic sort of like structures that prevent us from actually having a really diverse team. And right. say, does someone have really strong will? Does someone demonstrate the ability and the aptitude to want to learn more? That if you hire someone different and it doesn't work out, I'm not going to ding you. Right. I just want you to tell me that you tried and that you helped this person because that's all that we can do at the end. Is to create that opportunity and that sort of environment for people to be able to make a mistake or to make a bet. Because I think that's where a lot of the DEI gets caught in is that people are afraid to make that bet because they're like, if it doesn't work out, then right. I don't get to produce. Whereas like actually recognizing the effort is just as important. Especially in marketing, I'm seeing a lot more kind of non-traditional hires or people changing industries completely, which shows me that... HR functions and um, senior leaders are being more open-minded to those transferable skills. Yeah, no, I, I think it totally is. And especially now that the job market is so tight, I think people have to start being more open, open to different yeah. types of non-linear like roles that help people actually think about that want to work in your teams. You make a good point too, because as an example, the mentor program, the goal with our executive mentor program has always been to change the face of the C-suite by bringing up and, and ex- inspiring, mentoring, diverse marketing executives that yep. maybe their next move is CMO. And so that I feel that point where when we're looking at, we might have hundreds and hundreds of applicants. And when we're getting yeah. down to that group, it's really looking at the diversity in the mix. So we're trying to do more outreach, I would say, than just taking the inbound because you never know um, who you can inspire that way. Um, now, I, I do have a couple more questions for you, Stephen, before we wrap up. You've shared a lot about different things that you're thinking about as a CMO, um, you know, things that are ongoing. Right now, today, as a CMO, what yeah. keeps you up at night? Oh, I think if it's making sure that our teams are engaged, that they're happy with what they're doing, that they're not all burning out. I know that I know when I'm feeling burned out. 
and and share with my team that I'm feeling burned out. And I said, if I'm feeling burned out, I'm sure they're like three times as burned out. And what can I do to either show my appreciation or demonstrate that maybe we could do something to slow down a little bit? I do think that's what keeps me up. And, and I was like, am I being present enough in that all the time? Because I know that I'm constantly being pulled by driving results and, and driving productivity. <laughs> if I think about it, the entire pandemic has increased productivity by 20%, simply just because people are online, but everyone's on at nine o'clock in the morning, right? right? Makes it harder maybe to shut it, off. Maybe harder to shut up, maybe. And yeah. even this, if you think about the extra 10 minutes we used to have to like, should we have a discussion before meetings? Nope, 902, hope you're late. <laughs> you're like, it's a constant pressure. I'm worried that I'm not doing enough for my, to show my appreciation, to help relieve burnout and to make sure that they're also feeling engaged in the work that they're doing and that they see the, the greater purpose that once we go back in the office, this will all be for the right reason. I think anchoring into what we do as a business and why how we're helping sellers is always important for me. So I think that keeps me up at night because all the other stuff, like the details around like privacy, budgets, I feel like those will sort itself out. But ideally it's like, you know, I can't deliver on my promise for the business myself. I have to deliver it through my team. And if my team's not feeling like engaged and I'm having attrition issues, that's what keeps me up at night. And then having to constantly fill that pipeline means um, how do you balance all that? Yeah. I think to what we said about earlier, how do we not just get diverse, but also think through people that might have different experiences. Um, You know, I tend to have a lot of people also here in the West Coast, which is a very competitive market. How do we think about being open to remote, which I think a lot of times we weren't before, but now we are. Another good topic for a symposium we're going to have coming up, just future of work in general. I think that's obviously top of mind for everyone. Uh, So Stephen, I I did see on your LinkedIn that you attended an executive program, completed that at Harvard. Now, tell me a little bit about that. That's different than an MBA. And I'm curious, it, it struck me because... Um, again, conversations with marketers today, a big question is, do I need an MBA or not in order to progress to the C-suite? So I wanted to get your take on that. So, oh my gosh, that's a great question. I, I think when I was going through this whole journey, like about eight years ago or 10 years ago, I didn't, if I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I probably still would have done the same thing. But I'll say this, I loved marketing as a function. I knew that I only wanted to do marketing. I had no desire to go into consulting, to go into finance. And so at some point in my life, I, I had a choice when I want to go to business school and I didn't get in. So at that point I said, okay, I could either keep trying or I could just go down my path. And I did some research at the time around individuals who I thought had really great careers. Was that right after your undergrad or was that in, well into your career? Well into my career, probably like six years into my career. Okay, got it. And at that point is that's when you're supposed to start considering going in. And at the time I was like, okay, if I can't get in, it means the universe telling me this is not the right path. And just really listening to that and say, hey, I want to continue to be a great marketer. I don't know if, I, if the option, because at the time the option was, okay, if I get off the train, go to school for two years, I'm going to come back into a role making less money than I'm doing now in a role where I'm actually more junior than I have right now, the path I'm on. And so I think it was really having the confidence in myself that if I just keep doing what I'm doing, work really hard, make the right decisions about my career, that I'll end up in a place later where I might need some additional education. And is there another option that I can take that isn't a two-year full-time X hundreds of thousands of dollars? And I always said my strategy and the whole thing when I thought about it was, how do I get the most amount of gain for the least amount of effort? Which is that, is there another program where I could learn all the right things about how to think like an executive, how to think about the strategy issues dealing with companies, how to think about leading teams? And I found that there were a lot of executive programs that actually afforded that 
but don't require, like I said, a full two-year commitment. And that if you could weave it into your work, it actually become a real life like working experience. And so to what we said earlier in my last years at GrabHub, that's when my CMO sponsored me to do this. And it was fantastic because I was able to actually go through this whole learning experience while being in the job that I knew a lot of so that I can actually apply the things that I was learning to my job. I, I honestly couldn't wait to go back to work after each of the, the learning modules. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's actually something to apply. And to me, that was the most rewarding experience because it wasn't like I went to school for two years, thought about how to be like a CEO and then came back to be a manager. So what I often tell people is this, business school is really great if you are at a crossroads in your career and you don't know what you want to do and you want the ability to say, do I want to go into finance? When are I going to consulting? It's great for those individuals. It's also great for people who are like, you know what? I know I want to do this after two years of working. But for those who are maybe in the unsure bucket, whenever you're unsure, it probably means you don't really want to do it. And you're feeling that pressure that everyone else is doing it. So maybe I should do it too. I would obviously don't listen to that kind of pressure because if you love what you're doing and you're really good at it, and that's the talent that you have, whether you're in a specific role in the market, et cetera, keep doing it. And like I said, you can move up to the C-suite as long as you continue to focus that, focus on the most part that the work ultimately speaks for itself, right? Your work, your experience, your output is what speaks for itself. And that the, the school is just a nice to have to open doors, but it doesn't actually guarantee success. The one thing I'll also say, and it's like, it's not a knock on it, but business school was more valuable probably 10, 15 years ago when there were far few people who actually had it. Now it's much more commoditized again. So a lot more people have it. And often the advice someone gave me was like, look, unless you're going to apply for one of the top 10 schools, the, you know, the actual impact in your career relative to the investment is not worth it. Right. Um, well, and the rise of online schools made that even more challenging. Yeah. Exactly. So I think now people have to be even more thoughtful about what is the role that school is going to play for them? Is it going to allow them to change careers? Great, do it. It still depends on you in the long run. Like you said, it applied to your everyday. To my everyday. And I couldn't wait to see it work out. I was like, oh. And I think for me, that was the most rewarding thing about doing something later in life where I could um, actually apply it. It felt like at the right time. And it was something that also helped elevate my sense of as a leader. I just need to know enough about accounting to be dangerous, but not enough to (laughs) run in accounting. And so once again, what is the least, what option has the most amount of gain for the least amount of effort um, in that time of career? And And I felt like an executive program was the right thing. And I often advocate to people, it's a third of the price. You can also choose it on your own time and your own schedule. What works for you. So especially if you have families, it works much better. And all the people I know who went through my program have all elevated in their careers in very different ways. And also at the time you're dealing with people who are all executives already, right? So even the conversations in those classrooms are so much richer because it's not, I'd fire half the team and I do this. It's like, no, actually I did that. That didn't work. This is actually what might've worked. Oh, that's great. Learning from each other in real life for the professors themselves is much more fulfilling for them as well. Absolutely. Good advice. Sadly, Stephen, we've come to the end of our time, but I've so enjoyed the conversation. It felt just like talking to a friend versus versus an interview. And I do have uh, one final question for you, which you know what it is. Last but not least, if you were not a CMO today, and we've already heard a lot about your different passion points, I'm very curious what this answer will be. What would you be doing? Oh, my dream that I would be doing is I wish I was a professional tennis player or um, <laughs> because I just, I just love the idea. Like you get to travel, you get to play and you're constantly pushing yourself. So it's the same idea. But the thing that I would love is to be an actor. I think it's something that I thought about, but I just, I don't have it in me. I've tried it, but I, I think it's, I, I love the idea of it. And I was like, I've done voiceovers I've done all this stuff, but I don't know if I'm ready to be an actor quite yet. So who knows? Maybe one day, never say never. 
do you play tennis on in yes. your free time? And yeah. do you do any improv or acting classes in your free time? I've done improv. <laughs> I've not done any acting, but I have done voice lessons. Nice. Um, that's that's when I was like, I, you know what, by the way, voice lessons, so great. Because I was doing it in New York when I was there and I, I did it like as a side project. It's so great to actually, because it forces you to learn how to listen. Because when you're, the woman's like putting the instrument on, she's make the sound, you're like, I can't do that. But then when you're having to connect your body, your mind to your voice, it actually was a totally opened up a different part of my brain. But I felt it made me like a better, better listener because I'm like, oh, you want to make that sound? I don't know how to do that. She's like, no, you can do it. Oh, that's the sound. Oh, and you're listening to yourself. You're listening to the machine. Back, yeah. Oh, that's so, really um, cool. I'm sure it helps also in a way with presentation skills, maybe just yeah. like how you project or things like that. That's like, cool. that's, that's the other part I've, I've wanted to cultivate is more like the artistic side. Yeah. Um, not that I'm coming out of the Christmas album anytime soon. <laughs> My friends thought they're like, you're coming out of Christmas albums. Like we're not there yet. We're still on one ballad right now. Let me just get through the ballad and not destroy it entirely. Well, good for you. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Stephen, for sharing all of that great advice with us today. And glad we could finally get you on the show. Thank you so um, and yeah, of course. Look forward to seeing you in some uh, symposium soon. And we'll definitely keep you posted on the mentor program. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. Right. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, we'd love your help in sharing CMO Moves with one of your friends or colleagues. And please also be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Better yet, leave us a review while you're at it. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.